Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in our series focused on D-Day, we've talked about the airborne operations, the paratroopers from the 82nd and 101st Airborne Division that jumped into Normandy in the early morning hours of June 6th, 1944. But the main invasion would come by sea. And no matter how big of an operation that was, somebody had to be first. And that's the focus of part three. Today, we have the story of Captain Leonard Schroeder, the first Allied soldier to come ashore on D-Day. Now, everyone knows this invasion is coming. It's just a matter of when and where. And it's kind of a guessing game between the two sides. The Germans want to reinforce and resupply any expected landing sites. They have limited resources, as of course. The Allies don't want to run. It's going to be challenging no matter where the Allies land. So given the option, they don't want to land somewhere where the Germans are maybe most well defended or most able to fend off this large-scale attack. It's years of planning to put this together, years of secrecy, and the Allies decide on Normandy in France. But the Germans guess that they'll come across at Pas-de-Calais, a little further north. There's a reason the Germans are thinking this. It's the shortest distance from England to France. It makes sense if you're going to have to cross the English Channel, why not aim for the shortest distance to be able to move materials back and forth, not just throughout the initial invasion, but throughout the the eventual campaign across France and into Europe. But there's another reason. There's something going on at this time known as Operation Fortitude, and it's a large-scale deception plan that was wildly successful. The Germans are the Germans believe that General George Patton is, we'll say, the most capable, or maybe they'll all say the most feared American general on the battlefield. And they expect any major operation like the invasion of Europe will have him right at the front. So he's monitored. His name um, is kept track of if it pops up in radio intercepts. And the Allies play right into this. So they name George Patton as the commander of the first U.S. Army group, which is a fictional group. It doesn't exist. They build barracks for this first army group. They have, this is where you'll famously see the inflatable vehicles, tanks and trucks. Again, barracks. There are teams of individuals put into rooms to operate radios to send so much traffic that as the Germans intercept piece by piece and just see the, the sheer volume of, you know, made up orders going back and forth and orders as in like orders for equipment right? The Germans are intercepting these and they're seeing the quantities and they're listening to the names of units and the organizations and so on and so forth. It sounds like there is an entire first army group up there near Pas-de-Calais preparing for the invasion. It's playing into what the Germans already expect. On top of this, and this was more of a British operation, or I should say more of the credit goes to the British in this case, just about every spy, German spy in England had been I think the best term is compromised. Many of them had been turned and were now knowingly providing false information back to Germany. And the ones who had not been turned were known by the Brits and they were intentionally feeding them bad information. In many cases, information that had the Germans, that 
that continued to feed the German belief that Pas de Calais was the source of the Allied invasion. This was so successful that not only did the Germans expect the invasion would take place there, but even, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit, even after the main invasion had taken place in Normandy, they were still skeptical to commit reserves from that region because they thought the main assault was yet to come at Pas de Calais. This would play out throughout the summer of 1944. This wasn't like by June 7th, 1944, the Germans said, okay, now we got to go. This was such an intricate deception plan that it played out for a couple months. So that takes us to when. When is the invasion going to take place? Well, there's a focus on a couple different variables for the Allies. It has to do with tide and weather primarily. They want to assault, the Allies want to assault at a relatively low tide and with as much open air cover as you can. Not a cloudy day is ideal. So we can have the bombers and the aircraft overhead with clear visibility of the beach. Now on these beaches, all up and down what's known as the Atlantic Wall that Germany built to keep out this invasion, they littered the beach with obstacles. And this is another area where Germany and the Allies just viewed this little piece differently. Germany placed obstacles that were designed to, some were crisscross railroad ties that would rip the bottom out of landing craft, where there might be poles that would have mines, anti-personnel or anti-vehicle mines attached to the tip designed to blow landing craft out of the water. And at low tide, it just looks weird. There's just obstacles lined in the beach, but for you or I to run through that is no big deal. But the tide varies so much in, along the Normandy coast that throughout the day, those would be covered. And all of a sudden, the landing craft coming in, displacing a fair amount of water, hit those mines, hit those obstacles, and become, I mean, are, are destroyed, damaged, clogging up the beach. The difference here with how the Germans and the Allies are looking at this is the Germans think that we're going to want to drive those landing craft right up as far as possible. You know, think of it like we use, like we could even use armored personnel carriers today. You don't want to drop your guys 500 yards from an objective. If at all possible, you're punching that Bradley through a wall. And then the ramp goes down and they're on top of the objective. That's how the Germans expect that we will utilize our troop carriers on D-Day wherever we land. But the material and the equipment is not more important than the lives, but we can't do this without the amount of shipping and, and, and the ships and planes and vehicles that we have. We can't afford to sacrifice all of these landing craft that might happen if we hit at high tide. And the decision is made. Somebody has to make a decision at some point here, right? In this case, it's General Dwight Eisenhower makes the decision that instead of landing, well, I should say all all of these decisions rest with General Eisenhower. There are a lot of people further down the chain that would have driven this decision is probably a better way to say it. Decision is made that it is success is more likely if we land the infantry further back at low tide and they have to move across open beach that's a greater likelihood of success in the overall operation than if we're losing landing craft every time they go in. The idea is we can just keep bringing more and more men, more and more equipment before the, and then eliminate the beach obstacles before the tide rises and all of a sudden we're stuck. There's a lot of planning, a lot of coordination, incredible amounts of planning to get this operation off the ground. But at some point, there's a handoff. There's a handoff between the military planners at a high level 
and the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that are asked to carry out those missions on the ground. And in this case on D-Day, it's very stark. General Eisenhower would remain behind in England. He had a lot of jobs, a lot of things that he needed to take care of. The initial invasion was not his only thing. I mean, he was talking about, he had to plan and coordinate all of the follow-on supplies and and the war continued to rage before and after D-Day. He wouldn't be going ashore. He wouldn't be jumping in with the paratroopers. There came a point when the ships took off and the planes took off to drop the paratroopers that Eisenhower just had to hope that everything he had done was enough. Victory was far from certain, far from certain. So much so that General Eisenhower drafted a letter. It could be called a failure letter or in case of failure letter, maybe is the way to say it. And I think it's worth reading because it's one that never was circulated until a while after the war because it didn't need to be. But I think it highlights just maybe the leadership of one of the American military's most storied leaders. How about that? The letter reads as such. Our landings in the Cherbourg area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all the bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. I love that because before a single decision is made on the ground, before a single paratrooper hits the ground, before a single Higgins boat hits the beach at Omaha, Eisenhower recognizes that as the leader of this organization, it is all on his shoulders, no matter the decisions that the men make on the ground in the midst of combat. But now Eisenhower has to wait. He has to wait while men like Captain Leonard Schroeder begin to act. Schroeder joined the army in 1941 and arrived in France in January of 1944, arrived in England in January of 1944 to prepare for the invasion of France. He was the company commander of Fox Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 8th Infantry Regiment of the 4th Infantry Division. And like we said right at the beginning of the episode, no matter how big of an op- no matter how big an operation is and how many planes, ships, men and equipment it's going to entail, somebody has to go first. That task to be in the initial wave assaulting Fortress Europe fell on Schroeder's unit. Imagine that. A lot of these guys have never been in combat before. And even if you had, nobody had taken part in anything to this scale. You know, we called it, I called it Fortress Europe a minute ago. It's a common term just with how well defended the Germans have made some of these beachheads. And there were a lot of preparations. We'll get into the bombings and the naval gunfire. And there's a lot of things on the Allies' side. But just going into those beaches at all would be terrifying. It's hard to imagine getting the nod of not only are you going in in the invasion, in one of the first few waves, you are the first wave. You will be the first ramp to drop on Utah Beach. Utah Beach is where the 4th Infantry Division is assigned. This is the assault that they'll spearhead. It's one of five codenamed invasion beaches across the, across the Normandy coast. It is the most western beach, sits on the Allies' flank, and they are designed to move inland and kind of cut off the Cherbourg region. This is the deep water port that the Allies really need. So it's critical for the 4th ID to come in, cut off the peninsula, link up with the 82nd and the 101st Airborne Division that jumped in a little bit early, 
and eventually help lead the assault on Cherbourg. Now, after Schroeder finds out that his men will be leading the assault onto Utah Beach, he has some frank discussions with his men where he shares that they should expect 70% casualties. That would prove to not be true in this case, but what a smart thing to do as a leader. I don't think that's a crazy number. I think that that was realistic, being the first into the teeth of this German war machine Sets the stage, lets his men know what they're in for. And to a man at 2.30 in the morning on June 6th, his company all started climbing down the rope ladders into their landing craft in preparation for the assault. The landing craft are called LCVPs or Higgins boats. They're named after the designer, Andrew Higgins. And well, Eisenhower famously said that Andrew Higgins won the war for us. That's how critically important these landing craft are. The large troop carriers can't make their way all the way to the beaches. In many cases, they might get stuck. They're just too big. They're, they're too risky to lose some of these. We can't replace them as fast as we can replace Higgins boats. So these Higgins boats are designed, LCVPs, to carry around a platoon. 36 soldiers plus a crew, a couple of machine guns usually. And it's a flat bottom boat with a, um, a ramp at the front of the boat, soldiers facing the ramp. And it's designed as a flat bottom to roll up on the shore, drop the ramp, and the soldiers can exit into their assault. Get out as quickly as possible, right? Run out forward. The boats are loaded. The landing craft are loaded, and they start circling with Schroeder and his men off the coast, still in the dead of night. And it's bumpy. It's choppy. It's the English Channel. It's not... It's not smooth sailing into the target and the flat bottom doesn't help the cause. I don't spend a lot of time on the water, but my understanding is you put a flat bottom on a boat and it's just going to bounce all over the place, makes for a nasty ride. And now you got to think about these soldiers. Think about Schroeder and his men. These are guys who they know what they're getting into. When was the last time they had a good night's rest? Would you be able to sleep the night before? They probably didn't get much sleep this night. I mean, if they're, loading landing craft at 2.30 in the morning. You know they were awake well before midnight. What about the night before? you think they slept at all? If they did, there's no way it was comfortable, right? I'm sure somebody was able to pass out, but what about food? They, they certainly need to be eating right before something crazy like this, but could you keep it down? Are you hungry at all? I mean, this is, I think of the stressful experiences in a life like a, like a test or or a sporting event, or whatever it might be. And you think about how you really want to be ready for that big presentation at work. You want to be ready. You want to get a good night's sleep and and have a good breakfast maybe. And you certainly don't want to be sick. These men are in a fight for their lives, entering the deadliest of combat they may ever see. And not only did they probably not get at least a good night's rest, they may not have eaten any food recently, or if they could even keep it down, now they're loading into these landing craft, bouncing through the seas, and Schroeder expected or, or reported after the fact that 80% of his men were seasick, vomiting all over themselves. Think about that. This might be the defining moment of their life. Their life is literally on the line in a few short hours. You're lacking sleep, maybe hungry, and you start vomiting everywhere. You're seasick. But as soon as that ramp goes down, It's go time. 
the Navy begins the bombardment of shore at 545 in the morning. They couldn't do it a lot earlier for secrecy reasons, really. Remember, we want to keep the Germans confused and surprised when the actual landings take place. And if every bomber from England hit the Normandy coast for two or three weeks prior, it certainly would have softened up the defenses, but that's probably sending a signal to the Germans that we don't really want to send. So at 545, the Navy ships open fire, hammering the beach defenses on Utah. The soldiers out in the landing craft talk about the sounds of freight trains going overhead as the shells passed. As the sun comes up a few minutes later, they're able to identify specific bunkers and targets, machine gun nests, and the Navy just gets after it. Worth noting, one of the ships providing fire support was the USS Nevada. The Nevada was stationed at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, took a few hits during the Japanese surprise attack and nearly sunk. And here we are a few years later, halfway around the world, and they are directly supporting the D-Day invasion. That's pretty cool. By 610, bombers get in on the action. The naval gunfire lifts, and you start to see uh, allied bombers come in to mop up, hit any targets that are remaining. Due to some cloud cover they ha- and smoke, they have to drop a little lower than expected, which works out well. There's not a ton of ground fire coming back at them from the beaches, and it means that they're going to be much more precise with a lot of their drops. As the bombers are coming in, releasing their ordnance, Schroeder gets the call, go. They turn towards the shore, again, riding through the choppy waves with more and more of his men getting sick and vomiting all over the landing craft. And at 628, two minutes early, which is dangerous when you're trying to coordinate with artillery, naval gunfire, or coordinating with naval gunfire and uh, bombers, at 628, two minutes early, the ramp drops and leading from the front, Captain Schroeder jumps out. The first Allied soldier has just hit the beach in Normandy. Now that's not really on his mind at the time because as soon as he hits, as soon as he exits the landing craft, he finds that he's not on the beach yet. He's still in the water. He has to wade through sometimes waist deep water up to a hundred yards before he'll reach the sand where he can actually run. And think about that. If you've ever had to walk or move through water, there are people shooting, there's bullets impacting all around, shrapnel flying through the air. He has to hold his weapons out of the water and move as fast as he possibly can. It sounds like a nightmare. Like, you know, you just can't move as fast as you want to. It sounds like a nightmare. He makes his way through the water to the shoreline and consolidates with his men. Around that time, Brigadier General Roosevelt, who is 56 years old, the oldest man to come ashore on D-Day, the only general to come ashore on D-Day, notices, pulls in some senior leadership and notices that they mistakenly landed about two kilometers south of their intended objective. And at this point, you've got that decision-making on the ground. Eisenhower famously says, we'll start the war right here. And for good reason, Eisenhower, Eisenhower, I think I said Eisenhower a couple of times, that's Brigadier General Roosevelt on the ground. Eisenhower's back in England. Roosevelt is the one who says, we'll start the war right here. And for good reason, it's, they might be a few kilometers off from their objective, 
But what he sees when he looks ahead, he and Schroeder and the other leaders on the ground, is that there's fewer German defenses leading inland. They still can secure a couple causeways and start to bring folks off the beaches. Why not start to push inland? And that's exactly what they start to do. Roosevelt would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions on June 6th. It's an incredible story in itself. Shortly, Schroeder and his men overcome the beach defenses, defenses and start pushing inland. Before long, Schroeder is shot twice in the arm but continues to fight so long that he nearly passes out from blood loss. Now, if we step back and look at the story on Utah Beach, it was a success. Schroeder and his men accomplished their objectives. I shouldn't say that. Schroeder and his men were successful, although not all of the D-Day objectives were met. There's a couple of reasons for this. The early bombardment was highly successful, both from the naval guns and the bombers. They decimated some of the German defenses. But also, some of the German defenders, some of the defenders, I should say, weren't German at all. They were conscripts from Nazi-occupied territory, even the Soviet Union at times. These soldiers in Nazi uniforms facing off against, on Utah Beach, the 4th Infantry Division and the 70th Tank Battalion, were more likely to surrender, less likely to fight to the death, and in some cases would even turn on their German officers and NCOs, kill them, and then surrender. It didn't account for every position all up and down Utah, but it was an occurrence on D-Day. The 4th Infantry and 70th Tank Battalion would suffer 197 casualties, but by the end of D-Day, they would clear the beach and hold six miles inland. Schroeder, due to the gunshot wounds in his arm, was evacuated and told that he told that he needed to have his arm amputated. So this guy, so Schroeder kept fighting, not with a little nick, right? The two gunshot wounds were enough to the doctor suggested he amputate the arm. But he stayed with his men and kept fighting until he physically couldn't go on anymore. He refused morphine so he could stay coherent enough to tell the doctors, no, you're not amputating my arm. And he was right. They wouldn't need to. He'd be able to save his arm. He would survive the war. Schroeder would survive the war and serve a 30-year career in the United States Army, retiring in 1971 as a colonel. And in 2009, at the age of 90, Leonard Schroeder, a captain on D-Day, June 6, 1944, and the first man to come ashore at Utah Beach would pass away. Now, if General Eisenhower was watching actions unfold on Utah, he might put that letter away. Not so fast. The worst was yet to come. 30 minutes after Schroeder and his men came ashore, the first wave would land at a beach just down the road, codenamed Omaha. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.